Welcome to TechnoSocial. My name is Daniel Fraga. And I'm Owen Cox. Here we're talking about all things shamanic, symbolic, occult, and technology. Consider becoming our patron, donating, and helping us continue to pump more of this weird and wacky content from the other side of reality all the way to the comfort of your own screen. We hope you enjoy. Okay, let's give this a shot. Round two, connection. Please fucking stay with us. We're here on Techno Social, me and Daniel and Raven Connolly. Hello, welcome, Raven. Hi, welcome. Er <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for I'm welcome. already making it my space. I'm like, this is my zone now. Thank you for having me. Well, it kind of, it chimes in with what I'd wanted to open this with, right? Because Daniel and I don't really know so much about you other than you're involved with Peter Lindbergh's Stoa, where you're doing a lot of hosting, right? So it makes sense that you're, uh, you're welcoming us. <laughs> so, so given that you've welcomed us, uh, tell us about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that would be my kind of immediate, like, I think, breakout into the internet world uh, was through the Stoa, which started in the springtime and I got I introduced to Peter Lindbergh and started uh, doing a lot of hosting and stuff but before that um, I was kind of I was a student at the Evergreen State College and Brett Weinstein and Heather Hay were my professors and I was there during the kind of explosion of the culture wars and you know until that point progressivism and, you know, anarchism and leftist ideology had kind of been the water that I had been living in. And it was that moment that was a huge inflection and created a lot of tension in my thinking about questioning all of these kind of conformist ideas that were around me. And that was a huge, like, kind of watershed moment for me that started to get me going. You know, I started reading Camille Paglia. I started reading Nassim Nicholas Taleb. I started getting into uh, the rationalist movement um, and, you know, reading Slate Star Codex. I eventually got, um, she was an anarchist teacher at the Evergreen State College who introduced me to Nick Rand, the neo-reactionary movement. And um, from there, and, and Justin Murphy and like all of these kind of like rogue internet intellectuals, I just kind of went off into I mean, I guess maybe you'd call it a reactionary uh, path of philosophy. Uh, But since then, um, I've just been aggressively consuming content in this this milieu um, and found Alexander Bard, which just like my eyes just like, you know, exploded when I, when I saw him. And he, I feel like really drew me into kind of this, you know, uh, he's like an utopian. He has like grand theories. He's like talking about issues between men and women in this way that's like very frank, um, really draws into uh, things things about the phallus, you know, talking about the mamilla, all of these things that uh, really resonated with me. And so when I met Peter Lindbergh, I t- you know, I told him all of this and he was like, whoa, <laughs> you have to work with the Stella. So that's kind of my intellectual trajectory. I also have been really interested in object-oriented ontology um, and phenomenology. That's like how I initially got into philosophy, kind of on my own. Um, 
So yeah, I don't know. And then I am a, you know, carpenter by trade and um, really interested in design, getting into VR um, and post a lot of, post a lot of groups that read books and talk about philosophy. Mm. That's a hell of an introduction. Um, out of all of that that you just mentioned, is there like, what's the thing that's most present in your heart right now that you feel like, yeah, I want to talk about this because it overlaps so much with our interests, uh, that we could really go in any direction. So I'll let you have the pick on that one. Yeah. Well, I've been kind of working on my own, on my own ideas about, kind of uprooting or trying to make a fork in the road in terms of thinking about the female human condition um, and really reframing it because I, I, I'm not very interested in identifying with the word feminist. Uh, I don't really like its connotations and the way that it's kind of become, I mean, I think really like a lot of the ideas of, of feminism have also become like kind of the water that we drink. And I remember being like raised with these ideas um, my mother was a feminist and uh, I was really encouraged to go in these like kind of progressive directions with my development. And I'm finding it to be really exciting to try and come up with my own ideas about what it means uh, to have this, this body um, that has this potential latent in it of like, you know, possible fertility of bringing forth life of birth. So one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is kind of building out a metaphysical system or a kind of mythopoetic system uh, that relates to the egg, being the one that is the home of the egg um, and how that goes all the way back, all the way back in our evolutionary history uh, to the moment where sexual reproduction became the innovation of replication. And that asymmetry that is latent in, in that form of reproduction and how you have these like one form, you have a single flesh that's divided into these two different aspects and what kind of comes out of that and how we share our kind of medium sized world, our aesthetic world with all of these other organisms that also sexually reproduce and how that connects us to nature and how we have inherited these forms um, rather than it being socially constructed that we're like sexual or that we are male or female. So that's, that's kind of like where my mind has been going lately. Um, that I've heard about uh, this angle that connects the mythopoetic expression of whatever it is that we're trying to do right now, namely with your journey with trying to reframe feminism and then linking it back to this thing that I've never heard before, which is, okay, let's go to the root. And let's go and, and speak about like when organisms divided into sexual reproduction. So how does that pan out? Well, I mean, if you take a kind of game theoretic approach, which um, I studied evolutionary biology and one of the you know, first things that you start learning about is game theory um, and how from very small initial conditions, as those things repeat over time, you can end up with this great amount of complexity. So, you know, you have the, you know, the game of life, which starts at these like very small initial conditions and you end up with these like, kind of beautiful mosaic patterns of behavior. So I was thinking in, a, I guess, a reductionary manner, and I would admit that there, there's something reductionary about, about game theory and how it reduces things into principles rather than into the particular way in which um, they are being manifested. But 
when we go back, you know, there's like different kinds of re- sexual, like replication, right? Like there's, pro- there's this problem of replication, of getting into the future. And uh, asexually reproducing things can just divide themselves um, in order to continue to spread and kind of take over territory. I think there's a pr- principle of space that you have to kind of recognize when thinking about this, especially way back when, um, you know, the world hadn't quite been uh, expanded into in the way that it has been now. Um, I think about the tie in this context uh, where there's all this solar excess and life had to kind of innovate to discover how to use that excess in order to produce their own biomass. Um, And part of that innovation of sexual reproduction was creating the potential for organisms to basically bring that solar excess into their bodies to create more life on the planet. Um, And so I go all the way back, right, to this asymmetry, because I think it's actually really important. It creates a dynamic um, between these these entities of the same flesh, um, where you have two different principles at work. You have the egg, which is scarce. It's fatty, you know, it's, it's like, got a lot of uh, material on it, you know, and that's part of its relationship to scarcity. It's, it's the larger gamete, and it stays stationary. It doesn't move around. Um, And then you have the male gametes, which are cheap, (laughs) they're plentiful, and they're mobile. They're the ones that go and try and find the egg. And so they're, they're dispersed from one another. So they have this, that's where the spatial dimension comes from, right? So they're, they're at a distance from one another. And there's a necessity in order for these organisms to get into the future for this mobile principle over here to find the egg. And then I also can't help but think about the tie in this context because you have excess of both of these forms. Um, but you particularly have a lot of excess of, of the cheap one and you have less excess of, of the egg. Um, and then you also can think about it in terms of like membranes. I'm thinking a lot about membranes as a way of understanding, um, you know, different sets of nested holes. And the sperm has to come into contact and actually transgress or penetrate or move and in a kind of sacrificial way. So there's something in intimacy, there's intimacy here in this contact that's being made. And in that transgression, uh, in that kind of sacrifice of these things being separate entities, the condition for the possibility of a future arises. And then you also have all the complexities of how the genes are actually being um, scrambled so you have more genetic variation with sexual reproduction than you do with asexual reproduction. And that aids in, in um, mutation over time as well. Um, so I think that this principle that we share, I mean, we share with plants. Mm-hmm. Like that's how old this thing is. We share it with plants. Like you look at a plant, you're like, what do I have in common with a plant? It's like, well, every spring, the plants open up with their flowers and you're living in the excess of the plant in its sperm. It's like all over the place. 
Um, and the flowers are these representations of, I think, you know, I think of a flower as being a hermaphrodite, which is another thing maybe we could get into in terms of what are actually the genders. Um, and Hemiopolia obviously talks about this a lot in sexual persona. There really aren't just two principles. There's three. And the third is the androgen or the, or the hermaphrodite. And you can see this also in nature. This isn't just like something, you know, it's socially constructed, but the flower has these two aspects to it where it has like stamens that come out and, you know, show the pollen, but then withdrawn inside the flower, you know, is this like little treasure box where the, where the eggs lie. And the sperm, you know, the pollen has to get itself inside this hidden place in order to fertilize the, the eggs. Um, so I'm like, that's like, I find that to be beautiful. Um, and I find it to be a way of connecting us as biological beings to nature. This like really important infl inflection point um, in our evolutionary trajectory that also makes us different from machines um, and from technological objects. So it also brings in this idea of like what it is to merge um, with the kind of replication of machines. And I'm still working on how to define how machines kind of replicate and what are the differences. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think that that's also an interesting part of what we've inherited by living in this time is uh, living amongst these other replicating beings and almost a kind of uh, war for territory um, and resources that's happening with these machines. Um, and I see myself on the side of like sexually reproducing organisms, which also kind of puts me on the side of nature in some sense. Wow. So there's probably a lot to go off on there. I think it's really interesting how like this angle that you establish that has these deep biological uh, evolutionary roots, how it can feed into sort of a myth of poetics and its deep implications on identity and reality, right? Because it's not only social construction, there's an angle or there's an element that has to do with the very nature of, of the asymmetry between uh, the gametes, for example. Um, and that has implications, you know, you take that small principle, you split it, you give it a billion years and all of a sudden we have what we have today, which is cool. And so I don't know what to ask, but I want to riff on something that you said. So you were asking about like the machines, right? Yeah. And if there's a dichotomy or even a continuity, right? Because someone once said that humans are the sexually sexual reproduction organs for memes and for technology. McLuhan, yeah. I think, said that. Hey, there you go. That's our perfect segue. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like there's any translation between the logic of biological evolution, the subsequent logic that builds on top of that, of sort of the culture and the difference, the cultural difference between genders and all of that? And do you think that there's a continuity between these two levels? And then maybe this pure layer of virtuality of autonomous intelligences splitting off from ourselves does it is there any continuity there do you yeah i mean i would say that there is there's this really weird thing so i would consider i think i would begin from a position that technology is nature in the sense that as organic beings like we have this latent potential in ourselves to produce technology um, and so that is kind of encompassed within my concept of what it is to be 
biological that we produce these kinds of things. Um, and then there's also some interesting ways in which I think you can categorize culture um, and the artificiality of living within uh, cities, of producing um, a kind of constructed world in which the human subject and the human um, community ends up dwelling. And I think that an interesting distinction maybe would be one that Daniel Schmachtenberger makes quite often, um, which is the difference between complex and complicated. Um, you know, the complex being biological, um, being things that through like all sorts of different kinds of principles um, are arising in kind of fractal patterns. They have hormesis. You know, if you stress, this gets back to antifragility in the scene to lab, right? If you stress an organic system, it actually grows stronger. Um, and that's kind of the beauty or the capacity that complex systems have to adapt. Whereas a complicated system is, you know, defined by mechanics. It can, it, it it's, has uh, fr fragile components, right? That can crack and break. Um, it's like assemblages, right? And we're drawn to build those things. We're drawn to uh, kind of co-create with carbon. You know, um, we've been working with all sorts of different uh, uh, aspects of the like material world uh, as humans for a long time with, with tool usage. Um, so I would definitely consider there to be some kind of continuity and some sort of, mm. I was talking about this the other day with like, there's some weird mystery here with why like higher or, or beings are, that have creatures that have like kind of complex cognition like crows or ravens um, or other types of intelligent birds are also attracted to things like shiny objects like metal you know um, and I kind of I kind of imagine this like you know neolithic man or whatever like walking through a landscape and seeing these like shiny little objects in the stream and just being so attracted to their limerence you know just they're they're kind of almost drawing him in almost asking him to make something of them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where, I don't know, it starts to get into this like conversation in, in the phenomenal, phenomenological world that humans are like picking up on. That's the, that's what, uh, what's his name? Manuel Delanda speaks of the morphogenetic potential of materials. He says that steel already has embedded within itself the ability to produce, say, the sword or the cannon. And so its potential is embedded within a, a lineage of technologies. This is the classical example. You have the steel that uh, is used to create the barrel of a gun, which in turn produces the sort of the shotgun and then the cannon. And that in turn ends up changing warfare forever. So there's this broad relationship of what's the same genus, a same phylum to even technologies, even memes. And perhaps from a phenomenological point of view, the way that we relate to it, and that's, this is where I'm going to swerve a little bit into the techno-social occult side of things, the way that we relate to this transcendental potential that is latent within technology and the materials is by pursuing sort of a pathic transcendental creativity by looking into, you know, there's a reason why imagination and the occult have such a prominent role and symbolisms have such a prominent role in human life 
It is as if we are speaking, you know, Nick Land speaks about this invasion from the future. Like there's this egregore, this autonomous intelligent thought form with which, you know, which whispers something to us. And maybe where do you scry the, the whispers from that entity? Maybe on shiny objects. Oh, yeah. Reflect. Oh, yeah. Totally. Just made a big leap there. Owen, do, do you have anything to not let me drive the conversation way too much into the transcendental? Do you know what's coming to mind, right? We spoke to Chris Gabriel recently. We did this episode with him and we were talking about the will, the creative will. And he's, he's a pure Nietzschean, right? And he makes the point that being an artist, being a creative, if you tap into that drive that is what fuels your artistry, that is nature inherent within you. And that is precisely why it is beyond good and evil. You know, I was out of my garden yesterday and I saw a, a spider eating a wasp in its nest and it was beautiful and it was horrible. And all at once, right? And I was sitting there with um, sitting with my girlfriend and she was looking at it and she was like, should we stop it? And I was like, no, like it's just fucking, it's a happening. There is no, um, we can't try and apply our human frameworks to this, uh, this devouring in process, right? That is the sheer pathos of the, um, of the naturalistic world, if you will. And that is what, what when we do art, when we do creativity, and that's why it's so elect. Then against that, we also have the um, the situation, Raven. You were talking about complicated and complex, right? Human civilizations, by and large, we've done a good job at taking the complexity of nature, with all its beauty and all of its fucking monstrosity, and making it complicated, right? And so we can kind yeah. of predict what's going to happen. If you put people through an initiation ritual and an education system through a um, a path of life called slavery or nine to five work, then you can predict the outcomes. You can control information flows and then you can actually produce something coherent, something that can be geared towards an end rather than something that's just kind of unfolding in a beautiful but unpredictable way. And I guess, Perhaps where, where Daniel and I spend a lot of our time thinking, but also more broadly, right, as you mentioned, Bard and Bard's networks, it's about tapping into this, this pathos again, precisely as a way that we're at a bit of a weird joint point with our civilizations, with our technologies. They, uh, they're not really functioning how they were supposed to. There's this weird, almost ironic inversion where the modern drive to conquer nature and to conquer the world with rationality at the very moment we thought we'd got it it turned around and conquered us we created these information technologies that are now preying on our minds and we're addicted to twitter and to porn and to news feeds and everything else and where i drive with this i think there's <laughs> getting into the real pathos i mean like, right push forwards there, there's no like just thinking it through hyper and tweaking the institutions a little bit. No, there's something very, very symbolic, very pathic that is part of the project that we're driving towards at the moment. And um, I guess that's interesting because it, it taps into this idea of the feminine principle, which is always perhaps more connected with nature and beyond good and evil. 
Does that ring true at all? I mean, I think so. Yeah, I would say so. Traditionally, it's interesting how women now uh, don't relate to that principle in the same way. Maybe we could get to that at some point. Uh, there's so much in what you just said <laughs> I want to respond to. <laughs> Do you have anything else you want to say before? No, 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 that's good. You go. Okay, okay. So there's multiple things there. Um, one thing I think uh, about the pathic energy. So going back to this distinction between the complex and the complicated, right? Like our institutions, our civilization is complicated and it can break. And of course, like you, a lot of the metaphors that are used for like failing bureaucracies is that they're brittle, you know, that they're um, crumbling, you know, you kind of like use the metaphors of like literal in infrastructure uh, uh, in order to describe what happens when these institutions reach a decadent stage. And then I think there's another thing here, um, I feel like Daniel will probably understand this given ontological design, where the design of the space, like the design of the world that we're in actually forms the way in which people intuitively want like understand ontology. So you can imagine these bureaucratic entities actually being of the, the brittle kind of calcifying system that they exist in. They're, they form themselves into it. And so they are themselves kind of careening um, into destruction with the systems that they have made themselves um, in the form of mm. through their interaction um, with that kind of space. And then this brings me back to the uh, exit and to the pathic, right? Because the beautiful thing that you just have to wake up to is like we are, are organic, complex organisms. We don't have to be in the form of these brittle systems. In fact, if we get back into our pathic nature, the rational bubbling that is the draw towards the shiny object that comes from some sort of um, space that we can't completely understand, when we blind our, our ourselves, I can only think of Asafal here, when we cut our heads off, you know, and we just begin to use that other eye, you know, um, of intuition in order to lead forward into the future, we're leaning on all of this biological hardware and wisdom um, that can actually allow complex organisms to move through when everything falls apart. Oh, no. Please. Oh, yeah. Oh, Continue. I think there's no issue with the recording. Owen? I apologize. No, so the recording is still going. Yeah. Okay, great. Hopefully it should have just rambled on because it should have made someone else the host while I was It there. may be the host, yeah. So I think it's probably fine. Um, Please, apologies yeah. for my Wi-Fi rudely interrupting you. No, that's totally fine. I mean, you know. Um, yeah, so I think that that's part of it is like, and I think that that's something beautiful that I'm noticing in this world is people being drawn to like, let's say Nick Land or like the neo-reactionary movement because it gives you this like way of understanding exit, of understanding like you can get the fuck out of this shit. And then I've been listening so much to Hermetics. Um, and I don't know if you all follow uh, uh, Metanomance. In fact, I just <laughs> edited our podcast with him this morning. Oh, beautiful. We've spoken to him. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Like Oh, he's so good. Oh my God. Love him. Um, he, he's been talking about this, uh, anarch, anarch as opposed to the anarchist. And I think this is like kind of perfect archetype to be channeling right now. And especially alongside this, um, pathic principle, you know, if you can kind of cut your head off 
and like allow for this pathic energy to arise um, and to build your tribe and to like investigate the world and allow for this like virtuality to arise that is like not out of the form of the constructed institutions, the civilization of which we have been made in the form of, if we can get into that mystery, I think that there's the potential of weathering through. And I think this is part of Bard's exodology, like being part of this class of this group of people that can weather through this bottleneck of institutional decline, decadence, uh, of the kind of careening of the Tower of Babel, just back down yeah. to the ground. I wanna ask you, like I wanna zoom in on something really interesting that you said there, <clears throat> extremely interesting. So you mentioned that, um, you know, whereas uh, we are in a society that is crumbling and therefore we ourselves, or rather the part of ourselves that is designed by that society also crumbles. You also refer to the fact that there's a pre-existing infrastructure, namely, namely this old biological basis on which we stand and that that in itself constitutes this possibility for exit, this possibility for alternative modes of sense-making or at least sense-making that is disconnected from the construct, from the autonomous spectacle. And maybe that we can like lean on as this ancient user interface that is yeah. of, a, of a deep sort of cellular basis. How does, let's go a little bit deep into that, please. Uh, sure. <laughs> I mean, I think this is part of the mystery is like, first you have to open that door. Um, and there's something so weird. This is another thing I was going to like that Owen kind of brought up in me is people are having such a hard time considering our relationship to biology. It's deeply disturbing to people that we are bodies, that we are biological bodies that, you know, the story about, uh, you know, your girlfriend and wanting to intervene with, with this, like, this grotesque but beautiful, like, interaction between two forms in nature. Like, people are kind of, and I think this gets into maybe, you know, the work of Mencius Mulbug and, like, Whig history and progressivism and uh, this idea of, like, intervening with our moral code, not only into nature per se, um, and to kind of defining or delineating it for our own purposes um, as like the kind of the, the, the people in God's form who are tasked with the duty of, you know, creating heaven on earth based on our moral code and that we will be rich based on that, um, you know, intrusion into the natural forces of reality, but also doing that to ourselves, right? And that gets back to this, like, um, I like to think of bronze casting I don't know if any of you are familiar with bronze casting, but I think it's a helpful kind of metaphor. When you're casting in bronze, um, you basically take whatever form that you're going to, to, to make. Like, let's say uh, you're going to make a bronze cast of a knife and you make, a, you make a form of that knife and then you take that wax form and you put it into sand and then you build a plaster sand box around it and then you melt it and then you pour the bronze into that cavern mm -hmm. that you've made. And I think that that's like exactly how, that's like a principle of how things work. And maybe this gets back to the feminine and masculine principle as well, right? Where you have these containers and then you have these forms filling the containers. And we are either, you know, a form creating a container or we are 
the thing inside the container that's being formed. So you have this like positive and negative space and you can see it operating on different scales. Um, and it's kind of, you know, where are you? And that these principles are active in any given situation, which gets back to ontological design, I feel like. <laughs> That's why Owen are super interested in this because one of the things that it makes us feel and that it, I feel it represents at all these different domains and levels of analysis is that it represents the willful and skillful and deliberate manipulation of these bo of all both of these principles in a way that leaves that ties the knot back into itself and then bids the question to to you to here to now of what are you going to do there's a certain prometheanism to it which is okay mm -hmm. so, and, and and that prometheanism as well it, it just feels like how do you how do you how do you speak about exit from accelerationism from this techno capital conundrum the only thing that really excites the soul is this prometheanism uh this ability to okay let's let's then manipulate all the circumstances of our of our surroundings let's take all the knowledge of both of these principles and now here's a choice now here's a choice between you know what chris gabriel talks the regression into the web which is woven by the digital spider which seeks mm -hmm. to worldwide web. web or something else and the word else is beautiful in this regard yeah i mean I, i've been thinking a lot about purging right like uh, I think there's also language in the like the decolonial space about this, like you have to decolonize yourself like this. And, and this is another thing. I think ideology is emergent, right, of other principles that are operating. Maybe this gets back into the kind of discomfort with 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 these weird kind of qualities of being in a hyper object. Right. We have this Cartesian individualism, especially in the United States. Right. Like we just cannot understand a metaphysics where the subject isn't the primary like center of all that is operating with these very like delineated lines, which I think also gets back into membrane theory. Like once you can think about things in terms of the membrane, you can consider porosity, you can consider nested membranes, you know, how things kind of come in and out of one another, but there is still some sort of form. And people don't, <laughs> people have like these planes of the existence that are like really flat and delineated. Um, and I think that, um, with that kind of way of viewing things, uh, it's it's like a bad, first of all, it's a bad, bad ontology for understanding how there are these things that kind of arise or like these convergences or like these provocations that were inside of some sort of container um, of which we are responding or reacting. Um, and that ideology isn't so much like something people are producing, but rather how people kind of converge onto certain explanations for phenomena or, or like manifest experiences that they're having. And that like, you know, flash of insight that they get when they read something particular and they're like, oh, this is the thing that's happening to me. And then they kind of converge in a group around this thing. And so you can see this pattern, right? In like the decolonial space, you have people like getting rid of their colonization as like a purge of like modernism, a purge of Cartesian dualism, a purge of these like empirical kind of um, views of reality, but they only go so far because they still have a pretty progressive view of reality. Um, and then you have the purges that are happening with whiteness, you know, you got to purge 
whiteness, you got to purge the racism. Like, it only also goes down to a certain level of reality. Like, the purge, I think the purge of exit in particular, I'm just being like, oh, like, get it all out of you, you know, like, go all the way back to like, uh, you know, the beginning of basically the overthrow of the, of the monarchy, right? Like, uh, <laughs> like in England, when the Calvinists take over and the Puritans kind of were able to, um, like conform everybody to their ideological stance, like go all the way back, go back as far as you possibly can and just let this stuff come, ugh, come out of you. Like um, in Spirited Away, when, when, the, when No Face comes into the bathhouse and he just like purges all of the trash and pollution and garbage and just like, mm. like it all comes out of him. And then, then like you're in emptiness. Like try, and, and you also see this in meditation, right? Like this, like, okay, we're going to try and get to this place of emptiness and then see what arises. Um, and then maybe that's also why I'm seeing a lot of the feminine principle being how people are um, interacting with insight. It's a lot of people are talking about receptivity um, rather than like kind of phallic principle of like going outward building, designing. And I think that's part of why like, Bard is so unusual and and his whole movement is so unusual because it's so phallic it's like he's like yes no we are building a fundamental system we are building this whole thing up from the ground like we are defining things we are standing by our definitions and it's also you know ecotopianism like we're going to go as far as we possibly can i think he is a unique kind of individual in that sense um but maybe for the rest of us at least i feel this way myself there's a certain kind of like receptivity that I have to cultivate and kind of allow for this arising to occur. Um, and maybe there's a, also a life cycle principle, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I'm also, I also feel like I'm working on building a virtual phallus. Um, I kind of I wonder about that myself. I'm like, okay, cause it's like having a penis is not having the authentic phallus yep. at all. <laughs> Anybody has to build a phallus. Like that's just the principle of the phallus. I was like, okay, I don't have a penis, but like I could build. Why the fuck not? Uh, like the androgen, you know, the go-between, you know, the hermaphrodite, like what the hell? I can do that too. So I don't know. That's kind of an aside. <laughs> you want to know something? It's <laughs> just, some, just a small thing, Owen. Uh, something go from, from one builder to another. It's interesting that the point, if, if you're looking at how, let's say, cults can be built in the process through which you have to put consciousness through when you're actually like preparing someone to be inducted into a cult. There's always this structure that you mentioned. There is a purge of a previous identity. There is a moment that is so intense that it will leave a, an emotional imprinting in your heart, which you described in this case as being this moment of sort of pure receptivity. And then from then on, something can be built. Well, what is that something? Whatever the builder wants. Yeah. That's the point. Who, are, who, who is building right now, um, th that impulse will either be taken care of by accident, by big tech, or by sort of mimetic insurrections, the kind of which we are trying to describe here. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Owen, were you going to jump in? Yeah, I was going to reflect on the fact it's interesting, right, that Bard is this outrageously camp androgynous figure and he is precisely the one who drives the phallic where over in the slightly more game b 
metamodern type space. I think the leaders of those movements, if you will, might be described as more traditionally masculine in a sense. And yet there is not this same drive with the phallic energy. And I'm not quite sure where I'm going with that other than to call it out as a as a curious observation. I don't know if it's something in, in the androgynous character that is able to more intuitively sense where both masculine and feminine principles are and thus call out more aggressively which one is lacking or needed precisely because there's a more kind of embodied understanding of both or what else it might be there's also the fact right that he is a he's a pop star where everybody else is a kind of traditional academic or business person which also throws things to the wall i think i think there's there's stuff that you you experience in life as a uh, as a high artist that don't quite get come through in the in the same kind of rigidly constrained environments of academia or, or business lifestyle something about standing in front of the masses and channeling his intense emotions through them typically the sex drug and roll rock and roll mm -hmm. lifestyle right? pathos again right but okay so now we're back to this point right where i'm wondering if is there an association say with with pathos with a particular gender or is pathos does pathos have masculine and feminine elements does is pathos kind of prior to them what do you guys think on that I think it's prior. Mm. I think it's prior. I mean, like, I think the pathic to me is related to this. Um, well, I mean, maybe there's, maybe there's like masculine and feminine aspects to it. Um, I don't know. Maybe we could work this out a little bit, but so if we go back yeah, to this, that's idea, yeah, if we go back to this idea of uh, this, this kind of problem inherent in this like singular flesh problem. So you have this like, these beings of the same flesh um, that are in a kind of modest way, they're the, 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 the same thing. Um, but yet they're divided into these two principles, one of the egg, the other of the sperm. And the sperm has to get to the egg. That's drive, baby. That's drive. Like, that is like unexplicable drive. Like you can't explain it. It's pre-rational and it's so deep inside of you. Um, that you just are, are, are hysterical. And I think that there's a, also a feminine principle here um, where we might associate pathos with like kind of movement or some sort of um, like masculine principle that's related to the, the movement of gametes, right? Or, um, you know, I, I've been reading also the sexual cycle of human warfare uh, and kind of thinking about that, <laughs> you know, exogamy um, and how this principle kind of arises and moves uh, into all of these different scales. But the egg also has drives. The egg wants to be fertilized, you know, and that's also a pathic energy. It's just, it's a kind of receptive pathic energy. And I think um, female sexuality is something that is very um, misunderstood or at least not very well studied or not very well contemplated. Philosophy has definitely not really done its work to understand um, the principle of sex from the perspective of the female body, um, which is part of why I'm interested in working on my own kind of like metaphysics of this of this thing. If we take like a idea of 
philosophy or worldview kind of arising out of the conditions of the body and the way that the body interacts with the world and like the kind of principle of pathic energy or logos or mythos that comes out of being in this container uh, that has certain kinds of form to it um, where I am like there's an arising that comes into me that I have and that I'm listening to that is of my body um, what kind of philosophy comes out of that Right. And like the fact that autistic men have been writing Western philosophy most of the time, um, that's, that's going to give you a certain kind of worldview. Um, and it's and it's beautiful. It's created a, in like insane, incredible things, but it's also missed a lot. Um, and I see this opportunity now uh, to just begin to work from first principles again. And this goes back to the idea of purging work from first principles. Like none of these things that are out there to just like take on and wear any of these ideologies that people are just like, you know, here, pick my ideology, pick my brand here, like join my mass movement. It's like none of those things are answering the deep questions human mm -hmm. right now. Like no way, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to being in the, in a, in the female body. I like firmly believe that. Um, the only person that I've really heard talking about this in a way that's compelling me personally is Nina Power. That's it. <laughs> so um, I think the pathic in the female um, is is different. It's different. But you know. Yeah, tell me more about that because like feminism is is basically too patriarchal, right? That's the uh, the provocative critique to throw in it. It's like women's equality by making women like men. We're going to, the moment that women are able to do trade and politics, these traditionally masculine, and the minute that women can go out and conquer males with their sexuality in the same way that men can go out and conquer women with their sexuality, then they'll be equal. And so strong, powerful individual women. And that's kind of where we're at in terms of mainstream discourse. So what is a, um, a pathic feminine sexuality? I mean, I think you can see it just... If you just go into the OnlyFans world, like it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I don't know if any of you guys follow Ayla, um, but she's like a rationalist porn queen. Um, she's great. I think she's my access point into that world because she's like very systematic about how she approaches her. Um, I mean, her her work. You know, she's like I would say one of these kind of androgynous. I mean, I think ultimately androgynous like sex worker sacred prostitute kind of people um and the kinds of videos that she comes up with i think really tap into this idea of like what the pathic is for the feminine it's very much this and you can see it all over the legacy of western art oh my god i mean it's so pornographic you know and this is what Polya talks about the whole time like the certain kinds of um gestures that that women do and you look at these videos of like revealing you know, of like, of like being in this desiring position to be witnessed, right? Like to create the conditions of being receptive has certain signals associated with it. And I think that that also, you can see that dancing in the kind of shadow psychosis of men, you know, of wanting to like know that that's true or real and understanding there's a deceptive aspect to it that like men are being kind of captured and used like the spider you know, capturing the the wasp in its nest, you know, and like eating it up and sucking it, you know, <laughs> it's like, so I think that um, it's just a different trap. 
And you can see this in the animal kingdom, right? Like with plants disguising themselves. Um, or there's a, there's a great example of the orchid um, praying mantis. It like pretends to look like an orchid. And this, uh, you know, the little bugs come up and try and like get in, get in and, and then the orchid like poof, snaps it up and eats it. Or the orchid mantis like eats it, right? So there's this deception principle that's involved in receptivity that you can see all over um, in, in the organic world. And I think that that is like a kind of aggression. It is an aggression. It's so cool because the way that I was going to formulate the question that Owen just asked you and that you so masterfully answered was more like, okay, if you had to package these insights into something that sounds more mythopoetic, more metaphorical, more symbolic, because that's kind of how you know, we are able to exchange these insights into the abstract in a way that's more fungible, more exchangeable. And you just described the femme fatale. You just described the lore of the veil of Isis, right? There's, is there anything else that comes to mind in, in this in this flow of symbols, if you had to like tell a story around mm -hmm. it is, what would you say? Well, uh, it's interesting. I think that, well, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, I think this is kind of really, maybe something about the androgen comes in or something, something for me that's weird about like sex bots or pornography. Mm -hmm. um, or like this kind of, uh, this idea of the decoy, you know, this like fear, uh, in, in like the masculine principle that like you're being, you're, you're kind of, well, that's the other thing. So you have these like dance between these two entities, right. And the male has this like quality, you know, of the moth to the flame where yeah. he's looking for these signals of receptivity, like, you know, the nape of the neck or whatever it is, like, or breasts that are engorged or whatever, like these are, are dilated pupils, right? Like these signs that there is someone who is receptive to his advances, his pathic energy. And uh, it's very easily captured. And I think men uh, are attentive to that. And it kind of is the shadow, right? Uh, and so there's these weird things going on um, where men are caught in like the kind of Glimmerance, uh, and I think that this is something actually that um, Chris said about our screens. They're not just neutral; they're actually magnets, and that's exactly what a receptive thing is. It's not neutral. It's not neutral to just like be a beautiful woman. It's something that magnetizes, and we know this. We know this. You sit outside on the promenade. And you're looking at people and your eyes just go right to the beautiful people. It's just a kind of magnetism that certain people have. And you, and you feel a little like, oh, like I shouldn't be looking, but you're like, oh, I can't help myself, you know? And that's like <laughs> being captured by pornography, by sex spots, by um, people who appear in one manner, but actually are of another. Um, and I think that's also where the androgen or the hermaphrodite sits in such a interesting place within our kind of history. And I'm reading sexual personae right now, um, right? And so one of the things that Paulia talks about is like in the social novel, which is very popular um, during like the romantic period, mm. the androgen was always treated in this very negative light as this kind of like, you know, 
this force that was going to like ruin the social cohesion. And the end of the social novel often um, involves marriage, kind of like at the end of Shakespeare. You know, you have Rosalind and all of these characters who kind of go between, they're totally being androgynous and they mix everything up and they confuse all of the social dynamics. But at the end, everybody has their harmonious marriage, their heterosexual marriage and stability of society is maintained, right? So there's this kind of like, um, shadow or this haunting of the androgen that you can see um, in the certain forms of, of narrative that go through periods of Western history. And then you have other periods. I just finished the chapter on Emily Bronte, um, where her, her book, Wuthering Heights, there really isn't any conclusion. It's basically just the androgen leading to destruction, and that's kind of it. <laughs> you know, like uh, there is no like perfect. A marriage at the end. Um, and I think that that's why, you know, there's certain figures that Polya particularly likes. Like she loves Blake, right? Because Blake just like channels the great mother, the devouring mother and, and its forms. And there's no um, conclusion to those things. They just exist. And those forces are acting in the world. Um, so I guess those are some mythopoetic examples. Um, so I think you did <laughs> positive and then negative aspects, or rather shadow and conscious aspects of the mythopoetic dances that both sexes do when they are in this sort of mating dance throughout the ages, right? Is there any teleology to this, especially taking into account, you know, accelerationism and techno-capitalism? In other words, do you see this dance that, you know, in Shakespeare's times was uh, instantiated into symbols in one way, and in our days, is being instantiated into the symbols of the mainstream in yet another way with the struggles of feminism, with the struggles of, you know, the manosphere and all this stuff that we're witnessing today. You feel like there's, does it, is it pointing to something? Do you, do you feel like there's an exit or is it really just unresolved as, as it is at this point? Mm. Because you, you just kind of elaborated this new aspect, this, which is brilliant, right? To articulate this um, female perspective point of view on, uh, on on the female pathos, especially in the digital age, right? And how it has sort of this shadow aspect and positive aspect as it relates to the male, which is kind of a moth to, to the flame. Yeah, I wonder if there's some sort of conclusion, something, I, I guess this taps back into one of this, like the mysteries, right? Um, Something that I have been thinking about, and this does kind of relate to the kind of cyborg nature of most women now, uh, especially women who are of like reproductive age, um, who are on birth control. The change that has happened due to the changing of the risk. So that's the other thing about, you know, um, being human that like like is different from other kinds of organisms that is a kind of particular type of condition in terms of this asymmetry between the, between the, you know, the different gametes and how that relates or spins out kind of into the fertility, the fertility cycle of either sex. Um, there's some organisms where there's a very narrow window uh, where you're actually Pecund, where you can actually be impregnated. Um, and the signs of it are very obvious, you know, uh, it, it, like a baboon, 
assets swell up. I mean, you can't really like, uh, you can't really look away from that. You're like, oh, this is really very obvious. Um, and maybe this also gets into kind of this like withdrawn kind of like the way in which women are kind of portrayed, right? Where you're not quite sure whether or not they're receptive. You're not quite sure whether or not this is the right time um, that they're going to be, you know, reproductively available. Because we have this weird cycle where it's like we're we're available uh, for pregnancy all throughout the year. It's not related to seasons, but it's also like a narrow window within our cycle um, that's kind of mysterious as to when it's actually happening, where pregnancy is really possible. Um, and as a person receive uh, like watching or looking at this woman from the outside, you're not quite able to tell. Um, besides these really, really minute signals um, that operate on this like very unconscious level. Like there's been studies done that uh, strippers who are ovulating make more money, for example. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, men can tell, but it's not something rational that you can just like, you're like, you know, charting and, and really like creating cartography of, yeah. Because that reminds me of when Alexander Bard speaks in nomadology and he draws this from Deleuze, that in the primal nomadological tribe, when we were 150 people crossing the steppes, there was a king and a priest, there was always the, there was always the matriarch, who was the person responsible for saying when you can and cannot have sex because the tribe could not run the risk of having a baby in winter because they're going to die. So they had to really regulate the sexual cycles in this way. And you also mentioned something very interesting, which is, you know, there's, we don't really know when the woman is fertile because it's not like a baboon. It, 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 there's not a specific time. And that has given sort of the human, you know, from, from the little that I know from evolutionary biology that has given human evolution kind of, that's maybe the, the trigger point for the ankle point in the evolution, meaning that's when we were able to perhaps select ourselves better maybe women were the selectors in that sense um does this ring true from like your knowledge of evolutionary, bi evolutionary biology well it's it really you know human beings are so flexible you know it's i mean it's really quite amazing it's very hard to generalize um like yes we share the bo these bodies that have these um underlying principles um but how different human communities like you speak about this idea of the tribe and the, the matriarchs and being able to kind of determine and be the authority of when and when not to engage in sexual activity to avoid certain kinds of uh like pregnancy at inopportune times like that's one form of of interacting or engaging with um the sexual cycles mm -hmm. of of the of the tribe but uh, you know if you live in a tropical place and there's no winter then what we you know how would that change the dynamics and if you live in a place with like low amounts of resources um you may have a completely different mating structure right you may have one male for every five females who is uh you know they have more land and then there's a bunch of other men that have to go kind of wander the desert to go find reproductive opportunities so that's the thing about it it's like very difficult to generalize and i think that that's why um we have to look at our particular mating dynamics today and then cross it with a lot of different historical examples, um, try and get some context and some understanding 
um, about, you know, what it is that's going on now, which is like kind of a disaster <laughs> between the sexes. Mm, yeah, I want to say something that's going to, you know, draw the ire of uh, so many people, but I don't give a fuck. Um, so the notion that different uh, uh, positionings in the globe vis-a-vis -vis resources, vis-a-vis -vis climate, and the idea that that might have instantiated uh, unique uh, unique manifestations of the, you know, the relationship between culture and the sexual cycles, that, you know, that might have that might be an angle with which to look into the differences in culture. Some people say um, that winter had a, a domesticating effect on certain cultures and its cultural manifestations and forms and the way that, you know, the sexual cycles were regulated in those cultures versus other places and other people that have manifestly evolved culturally different dynamics in that. Now, that said, in 2020, the game has, you know, gotten exponentially more complex than that. And not to go too deep into the previous subject. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to drop that in because I feel like it's such an important factor. This, this cultural aspect, you mentioned the pill, the pill is, is Pandora's Huge. box has been opened. It's what Huge. are we such a big deal. No, like nobody's talking about the pill the way that they should be. I mean, it's like, and especially like so many generations in, like, you know, the fact that my grandmother had access to the pill and my mother and me, right? Like that's three generations of women and kind of having the choice. But I wanted to say something else before we go on to that um, about what you mentioned with different, you know, climates and kind of a geographical determinism type of argument, which I think like, uh, I mean, once again, back to this idea that it's like deeply uncomfortable to people to think that like, oh, as biological organisms, we may be formed by our locality and by like the climate systems and by the resources that are around us and that that may have something to do with the trajectory of, of our civilization. Wow. To me, that's like kind of a no brainer. Um, <laughs> but whatever. Um, I think also, you know, infanticide is a really important looking at here so um and also that leads into human sacrifice as well so there's this issue of uh, balancing you know flesh i think of it in a way i mean it's kind of weird but um if you like for example you take a you know civilization agrarian civilization that goes through boom and bust cycles you're taking but let's say you not only have grain but you also have herds you have cattle or you have some other kind of um organism that you can feed the grain to um, during like boom cycles. Uh, so you can kind of store the grain in this other organism and go through a, a, a bust cycle. You can then kill the cattle and eat them instead of killing the people, either through starvation or through human sacrifice or through war. Um, and that way you're kind of moving around where the resources are in a way that kind of uh, you know, because there's a certain amount of like nut nutritional resources and it's e if you lose one, you know, it has to it has to go somewhere. <laughs> and so I think that there's been these, um, these systems that have arisen from the intuition kind of of human beings organizing themselves on complex <laughs> scales to deal with population control in order to weather through boom and bust cycles that happen in an agrarian society. Um, and 
I think that, you know, you can see in the Aztecs, like they obviously had huge rituals of um, so, uh, you know, I think that that's kind of an interesting principle as well. And you can look back at all sorts of different human um, communities and cultures and the place at which a child is considered to be a, like a child changes. For some cultures, it's like, you know, I mean, for ours, for example, like the preciousness of a fetus is like the moment of conception is like where something is considered to be a child that is like has the right to life. Um, but in other cultures and other periods of time, even in Western history, the same lineage of, of, of like kind of Christian uh, theology that we have now, uh, you know, the baby wasn't considered to be a child until it was like, you know, maybe a year old. Mm-hmm. And there were these conditions in Europe during certain periods where women were just abandoning their babies in the, in the streets because they just didn't have the resources to take care of them. Um, and that, um, as I, I'm reading a book called Mother Nature, um, which is written by this like incredible evolutionary biologist and anthropologist named Sarah Baffer Hardy. And she goes through this huge anthropological um, investigation of uh, this period in European history uh, where women were kind of just abandoning their children in the streets and how it relates to the grim fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And like this idea of like the changeling or these like weird babies, you know, who are like, or they, they're being stolen by witches, you know, and all of these kinds of things, like almost as if it arises in the psychology of the stories, how people are viewing infants and the kind of psychological dynamics of, of a woman who is basically having to repeatedly, in some cases, abandon her, her, her babies because she can't abort them and she can't prevent pregnancy. She's basically has to like toss it. Um, so, you know, this is part of like the female human condition as well of like re- how it relates to abortion or infanticide. And I think that also gets into the principle of the devouring mother, right? That the devouring mother can give forth life, but she also takes it away. Um, and the infant and the mother are actually in conflicting dynamics with one another. You know, and that's where we have to kind of get out of this, you know, Mary with her baby and she's going to take care of it no matter what. It's like, no, that's not the only mother principle. There's also the mother, the mother Mary, the shadow Mary that like tosses her baby, devours her baby, controls her baby, eats her baby. Um, And I think that that's something that is like kind of, you know, definitely a shadow aspect of the way in which we view women contemporarily we view mothers um and we also then treat women um who are either non-reproductive or who are bad mothers it's all kind of in our our like the water that we drink of our of our of our society that's interesting it feels like we are able to manifest and articulate and understand that principle it will continue to exert tremendous power over us the collective psyche uh until we formulate it. That's that's what we see in the myth of the internet and of the spider and all of these from fatal things. And, and obviously we haven't sorted that out if we look at culture. I'm gonna look into two things that you mentioned right there. One of them is that there's an ad, so interesting, right? If you look at, the, you mentioned something about the time at which the child was considered to be a child and not sort of a fetus that was not deserving of a category subjectively of human. That's probably got something to do with 
the advance of medicine and its ability to uh, curtail infant mortality. Um, yes. Because today, any kid that's born will probably stay alive. Uh, that threshold has become much lower and went all the way back to somewhere before birth. Uh, you know, back 200, 300 years ago, the hygiene and medicine conditions were not so high. So kids were dying left and right before the age of four. So we might as well not even consider them human before the age of four from the, you know, discursive normative regime of truth that, you know, ruled that time. And then like to go back to the initial part of what you were just saying in, in this part, which was so cool. You mentioned like there's this chessboard, right, of the allocation of, ca of calories between, you know, the, the grain in the field and maybe you have some, some cattle. Maybe you have too many bellies to feed, so you might as well sacrifice it and create some, you know, take the calories that would have been wasted in these surplus people. Either send them to war, send them as lone wolves to fuck with other tribes, or mm -hmm. just sacrifice them and take their latent potential, break it, and open it uh, up on the sphere of belief, which is why the priest was the one conducting the sacrifices. Because like it's it's a nothing is lost, nothing is created, everything transforms, right? So yeah. it feels like this grand chessboard where geopolitics becomes the great chessboard of, of biology as well. Is the point where, not through the mind of the emperor, but perhaps by the dynamics of the system itself, all of these things balance themselves out somehow. The calories of the cow, and maybe you make some some beer out of the grain to keep your people drunk because they're easier to control. Maybe you sell vodka, make a buck, keep your control, and it stumbles down through Eden all the way to to Armageddon, which is this inescapable sort of flash of time. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts, Owen, Raven? Uh, well, the other thing I think is interesting in terms of like what was happening in the old world, so-called, and the new world was that um, they didn't have domesticated animals in this, like that domesticatable animals, like herding animals here in the new world. And I kind of wonder about how that relates to human sacrifice, because you can like, you can sacrifice a cow, um, and that kind of like moves that energy of like human sacrifice um, in this like great chessboard from the human flesh uh, into the flesh of a cow. Uh, so there's it, it kind of an interesting thing there of, of like an alchemical process of kind of yeah. transforming how you make sacrifices and how you end up kind of like working with these asymmetries, right? Um, kind of trying to prepare yourself or anticipate kind of these like future states and then also kind of coping with um, the conditions as they shift in one, in one, uh, in one direction or another. Well, let me throw something else. The point at which the management of this equilibrium, right. That you were just describing, maybe you have too many kids. Maybe we shall have to throw them down the pyramid and, and use that to fool all the other people, that management, that equilibrium. Um, I think it gets to a point where it is not explicit like we're formulating it now. You can't really create this Trello board for how to fucking manage society in that sense. But, uh, you know, when these things become so abstract, I argue that the priests and the shamans uh, have this intuitive capacity to formulate them in myth, right? That's, you know, when stuff is hard, you tell stories about it. Um, human sacrifice is a nice one from that regard because... Um, you know, Aleister Crowley and all these weird occultists, they speak about human sacrifice. But one of the interpretations, one of the coolest ones that ties just again back to what we were talking about was that human sacrifice 
the killing of, of, of children, the sacrificing of children is, in a way, something that is currently happening with pornography. In other words, when the man wastes his libido in this worldwide web of the vicious uh, malign spider being sucked by this regressive property, which is, again, shout out to Chris Gabriel for this beautiful concept, what is actually happening is you're sacrificing your unborn child. You're sacrificing your... Mm, your future. You're actually like a moth to a flame, but in a bad way. You're being deceived by these uh, wavings of the shawl of the digital devouring mother, which in turn, sorry, just to elongate, to elongate myself, it relates to what you are always talking about, Owen, the castration cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad that we wound up back here because this was in <laughs> my head from, uh, from about 20 minutes ago, right? I found it super <laughs> cool. So you mentioned, uh, I was asking about female sexuality right and you bring up Ayala and only fans like you can really see it in play right and that's that is a dynamic where the female content producer has so much power over the men there's this like humongous attention there's no longer being um, subservient to a producer or any kind of contract you put out your stuff you get paid for it bang and as Daniel said, the flip side of that is that it's like a hoover for male libido. And one of the, the big issues facing men right now, right, is, is pornography addiction. And just guys getting hooked on this stuff because it's there. It's there when you're young. And it's just so damn good, basically, in, in along certain, certain access, access, right? Like in terms of actual real human intimacy, in terms of having to be a man attractive enough to to attract a woman and thus growing as a person no, sucks. But in terms of sheer enjoyment, sheer absorption. Hyper normal, hyper normal stimulation. It's kind of maybe a dry way. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And it's, I mean, we have to refrain from doing some kind of value judgment here and then saying it's good or bad. It's right or wrong, but it is, a humongous power asymmetry that suddenly emerges and Mm -hmm. where I'm kind of, I'm curious being involved. Well, (laughs) number one, as a man, number two, as a guy involved with men's work, right? It's like, we need to do something about helping men to, to reclaim, reclaim their libido a bit from this, this devouring mother vortex. And that's not a kind of moralistic or absolutist, no porn, bro. It's not no fap or it's not any of these other kind of cults that emerge around masturbation or digital sexuality. But there is, I think, or Chris Gabriel in his video, right, was talking about precisely what happens with the the male, with the porn. It's as Alexander says too, it's the mamilla. It's everything you want. It's the mother that you suck on the tit and it gives you as much milk as you want, but it doesn't teach you to be courageous. It doesn't teach you to go out and to approach girls, to, uh, to, to conquer. Essentially as Peterson, right? As Pierre Peterson, go out dragon. So. I just want to jump in and say one thing that women are just as sucked up into this as men are. This is two mm. sides. This is two sides. Like I do hear a lot of the talk about the men and I see that, but women are also yeah. trafficking yeah. in the production of this stuff. And it is now so, uh, like you said, it's now you can be your own producer um, that, you know, now women are kind of 
capitalizing on their own uh, like kind of receptive signals to suck men in. And it's, 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 you know, the asymmetry, the power asymmetry may be that, um, you know, you have these essentially whales uh, on the female side, these like women who uh, attract huge amounts of money and men, like it's insane. All of these micro payments, like, and it's, it's really interesting to me because there's also this, this principle in female um, aggression where women kind of like try and keep each other in the same, same plane, let's say, um, you know, you'll, you'll notice that women like to hang out with other women who are like just about as attractive as they are, just about as you know smart as they are, you know, they don't, and, and there's all these stories. And I think Jordan Peterson actually talks about this as well. Like you can look at Cinderella or white, like all of these stories about these, like this exceptionally beautiful woman who has these exceptional qualities um, being the, the kind of scapegoat for all of the attacks of her stepsisters or her stepmother or all of these other women, female characters who have less of those qualities. So there's been this dynamic in female aggression, um, which is another thing that hasn't been, you know, really like unearthed, I think in the same way that male aggression has been, um, that women kind of passively try and keep each other kind of in the same strata of power and influence and reproduction has been constrained right you can only have you know you can only be pregnant you know once every nine months right so like let's say you have one exceptionally beautiful woman in a, in a tribe she can basically only really give the the bounty or the benefit of that to a single person um, at any given time. But now that there's been a decoupling, <laughs> uh, you can see this pattern kind of borne out, or at least this is my hypothesis, mm-hmm. that actually the female power actually allows for this winner-take-all effect that's even more dramatic um, than when men <laughs> engage in these dynamics, when they're kind of unleashed. And you, the, the inequality on OnlyFans is like more drastic than the most unequal societies in the world. Like there are these huge, huge winner take all effects. And I think part of that is like the female, uh, like the exceptional female characteristics that everybody is like normally trying to get at, but basically are, are have been constrained or contained, um, then being unleashed and it being kind of democratized uh, that anybody can have access to it basically causes that uh, female power to just accelerate in its capacity to take control of huge, huge demographics of people, um, uh, which is uh, really weird. <laughs> is there a kind of mimicking dynamic where it's like almost women getting sucked in because it's like, hey, I want to make money off my nudes. And so it like becomes an, an attractive thing that like the pull of, of power is like, hey, that sounds like a fun easy cool way to make money and get attention and and tap into what chris gabriel like geniusly calls like there's an anima to the internet right and that like behind all of these prophetesses that appear on the screens there is this like the spider i guess we can call it and and it's but it's super interesting right it's like is it because the spider sounds well actually no 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 it doesn't i was about to say the spider sounds cruel and kind of terrifying to a conversation earlier about the spider and the wasp right the spider is just a spider and 
the prophetesses of the spider hanging out on the web, bells as they do, and it works. Well, I think part of it is that like you can, and I think actually Chris pointed this out, like a lot of people in the manosphere, they like scapegoat women for this problem. But like Mm. the fact of it is both are actually attracted to the screen. You can kind of imagine that there's this like, you know, screen in the middle, there's men on one side, there's women on the other. And they're like interfacing with each other. But really they're both being drawn in to the limerence of the screen itself, both of them. Um, And so that's really where the power lies, but you can see it accentuating these asymmetries in the kind of underlying dynamics of of the sexual aspects of of men and women, um, human men and women, you know, uh, in the digital sphere, unbounded. I mean, it's like, you know, and this is the principle I think Nick Land really like brings forth. It's so useful in terms of, thinking about like the unleashing of zero, right? This idea of like there being these control societies that basically kept certain kinds of forces contained because if they were to accelerate so fast, the metastability of the culture would actually fall apart. And that we see this like this principle of of this like techno-capitalist entity this war it's it's just pulling the tops off of things it's just like unconstraining everything and so this is one aspect of that um unconstraining um principle working its way into the sexual dynamics between women let me throw a theory at you guys and see what you think so i want to connect back to that idea that i was you know talking a while ago about um the the grand chessboard of the management of human resources, be they calories, sexual potential, ideas, whatever. And, uh, you know, in the sexual nature of human warfare, there's this idea that whenever perhaps some society has way too many reproductive aged males, they send them somewhere else to either, you know, fuck with other societies and do war and get something from the self for themselves um, or just die right? because they can't really stay. Otherwise that affects the sustainability of the home system. Um, we're 8 billion people now. And when I look at when I look at, at these 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 questions around pornography and OnlyFans and all of that and, and this twisted sexuality that is becoming more and more attracted to its own dark reflection of this animus and anima, um, this is a genetic sinkhole. This is mm-hmm. where cells go to be sacrificed before they're even born, and that feels to me like precisely the thing that happens when big war happens. Namely, there's an evolutionary bottleneck. Only the few will be able to pass their genes on to the next generation, whereas the rest will be dead in an orgy of the last magic. If I want to like paraphrase Alifaz Levy in his history of magic, he says that in the old Babylon, the old Magi, they were like, they knew that Cyrus the Great was at the door and of their city and he, that he was about to conquer the city. And they had this warning, but they chose to disregard that warning. And they went out in a massive orgy that was so big. And because they had magic, the, the night became clear with all the light that emanated from that magic. But that was the last that they were ever heard of. And that's why the world no longer knows any magic. It feels like right now, right? We, we, have, we have a century before this happens less than a century, perhaps it feels like there's, there's such a convergence, such a singularity, such an exit, which will not be for the many. It probably is going to be for the few. I don't know. I'm speculating at this point, but I just want to like throw these words at you guys, genetic sinkhole, evolutionary bottleneck, and then 
a great chessboard of the allocation of resources and capital and libido. Yep. I'm just there with you. Like, I think that this is something else that Polio just really almost like redundantly explains in Sexual Persona, which is like the, the androgen character, um, the hermaphroditic character uh, is self-fertilizing and in that sense also self-extinguishing. It is a genetic sinkhole. And I think the other kind of discomfort of going back to this principle of the discomfort with this kind of like biological um, intuition kind of working itself out the hype in the hyper object of humanity kind of being a, a force moving the population dynamics over certain timescales that we don't fully understand or can't rationally understand or manage or predict um, is you see this principle that's leading people towards conclusions either consciously or unconsciously uh, toward of, of antinatalism uh, would maybe be one way of talking about it. But yeah, I mean, we have a huge spike in people who are attracted to identifying as queer or non-binary or women going through um, what is it? What I mean, it, it's just descriptively so a, a self-sterilization process of transitioning. Um, and then we also have, of course, this addiction towards pornography, um, but women also producing pornography rather than, you know, going out and finding mates and uh, it committing themselves to relationships where they would bear the fruits of their fertility and actually bring new human life into the world. Um, and then you also have women who are going into business, um, kind of a feminist, you know, go off and be like a man, um, which basically in a way is also a certain kind of uh, sterilizing process because to be like a man is, is um, not the same kind of fertility dynamic as, as being a woman. And so to take on that form is to actually become androgynous um, and to, to, to bring forth creativity uh, or, or, you know, business or whatever it is to give birth to these kinds of entities, especially in the brutality of the capitalist system where there's so much intense competition. It requires so much commitment, so much time, so much dedication um, that any other type of activity of, of family, of intimacy, of relationship building is, is, by the wayside, it's delayed. And the thing of it is, as a man, you can delay because your body is pretty much stable uh, for most of your life. Like once you hit your like prime in terms of your like your, the fullness of your secondary sex characteristics, if you're a man who takes care of himself. You can be fertile to like seven there and like pretty much look the same. Like maybe you'll get a little bit of gray, but like there's also this, you know, totally this trope of like, you know, the George Clooney, like this like kind of rugged older man who's like still sexy. Um, and for women, it's like the, the whole dynamic is completely different. And I think this is really interesting as it relates to the Dionysian principle. Um, a woman is basically continuously going through metamorphosis. There's like basically no stop on the road. Um, and I think birth control intervenes in a kind of Apollinean way. It freezes, you know, uh, a woman in, in this kind of certain state of sterilization. It's effectively a kind of sterilization. It's a self, you know, it's a chosen one. And, you know, people absolutely have the right to do that, but they, they choose to kind of freeze themselves in the situation where they're not realizing the potential of their fertility, but it's not really freezing because all of these other processes are still at work 
in a, in a woman's body. Um, and when you hit 40, you know, and you finally like, you know, the, the biological clock is knocking on the door. Um, and finally you can't ignore this drive that you have for, for children. And you go through a kind of midlife crisis and you're like, Oh shit, actually I want a family. What the hell? No, I'm 40. And I've never, I haven't had my period in two decades. What the fuck am I supposed to do? Um, and then women start kind of seeking uh, the realization of, of their fertile potential. And a lot of them, like they can't. And that in of itself has spurred, has like definitely um, spurred an industry <laughs> around fertility uh, that is like a whole mess of very interesting kind of both things that work, but also like totally snake oil stuff. <laughs> um, I think is also quite interesting, but that is, that's kind of an aside, but yeah, the, the freezing of, of the woman in this kind of state of um, almost like perpetual adolescence, I think is in some senses, because I wonder about this men have been, there's been, uh, because men at this form and then they kind of stable um, for most of their life. Often men also died for, for exogenous reasons. So they would just kind of have that form and then something would happen and then that was it. They didn't age principally in the same way as women. Um, and they were kind of initiated into masculinity through traditions and through uh, mysteries. Like often the older men in the society had these like kind of mysteries that the, that the, that the boys got initiated into once they went through some sort of ritual uh, uh, where they had to kind of prove their courage and their commitment to, to the cult of masculinity, basically in the community. Whereas women, I mean, yeah. Um, and like women, you know, you just got your, you got your period and then you had to go. And then, you know, once you did that and you got married, uh, you went through the initiation that is pregnancy. Holy shit, man. Like your entire body changes. Like, this is no small activity. I mean, like, imagine an initiation ritual where you have an alien implanted inside of your body that sucks all of the resources from your, all the way down to your bones, right? Like, that your hormones change. Your body is completely charged by these other kinds of drives. Suddenly, you have, you have this alien that's, you know, sending you signals to eat certain kinds of foods and to do certain kinds of activities, you become immobile. You can't even move. You know, your consciousness is like stuck in this like ballooning body with, with like engorged and sore breasts. And you're just like, Oh my God. It's like your digestive system gets all out of whack. And then you have to go through the riskiness of birth, which is of course something that in the, in history, like women often died in their first for their, in their, especially in their first, um, birth, because it was so risky. Um, these damn heads that we have, these huge heads, um, women have had to bear the cost of that. And multiple pregnancies also change the body, um, of a woman. And then you go through menopause. God's sake. I mean, uh, menopause is a crazy process and you come out the other side, actually like the androgen. It's fascinating. Um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, I think, talks about this so well when he speaks of the power of the grandmother. These aggressive women who are like, you know, he has a great story in Lebanon where like the war was happening and the soldiers would kind of come by and harass people and of a grandmother coming out, wagging her finger at these soldiers and the soldiers being like, okay, well, we won't bother you, you know, because these grandmothers have this like 
crazy aggressive energy because they have more testosterone in their bodies. Um, they start to grow hairs like men, you know? Um, and in that sense, there's this like period of time in a woman's life when she's old, where she does kind of become the androgen just by virtue of how her body changes throughout her life. And that is such a Dionysian thing. It's just this like process of becoming, of changing, of continual metamorphosis, continual kind of processing your own identity as these situations happen upon you. And the, the shifting kind of relationship that you have to your own body when these kind of alien forces are acting on it continuously throughout, throughout your life cycle. And then, I mean, for me, that leads me to go to this position of like, well, this is the, this is the full life cycle that, that a woman can go through. This is like the kind of peak. Um, and for me, I'm like embracing of that. I'm like, okay, that's it. You know, that's like, that's like reaching the kind of potential of the female form. But I think a lot of women are um, trying to manipulate it in some way or another, um, either through plastic surgery or through birth control or um, some of these other types of interventions uh, using technology because they don't, they, you know, they're attracted to some other kind of life trajectory um, that basically tries to postpone or uh, change what those things look like. Because perhaps there's an analogous way in which the men are also being trapped in a kind of adolescence. Certainly, I think contemporary men, a lot of us, and I say this kind of myself included in the conversations I'm having in men's work, have really cut off from feelings of aggression and abilities to express aggression and abilities to assert themselves in certain circum circles it's still um it's still prevalent i mean interestingly i think sometimes it's more prevalent in working class culture than it is in middle oh, class yeah. culture and you know I, I think a big element of that actually is the loss of warfare you know for most men for most of history it was always a possibility that you were going to have to pack up and leave your family and never know if you were going to come back you were just going to be with the guys on the road some of you were going to die and so we also developed psychological coping strategies for that like intense attachment to, to group identity and to teams, which still plays out a bit today in football and in football rivalry, right? Mm -hmm. It's like football is basically the stadium, the the place where men ritualize their conflicts. And again, it's a it's a primarily working class thing. I mean a lot of kind of elite business types like the uh like the top teams, but local small town football is like warfare for guys, right? And I think Again, we're at this point as guys in the men's movement of of asking like, how can we like relearn what it means to be aggressive and assertive at times and not be scared of that of that empathic energy again, right? But then also because you know in the Freudian way there is no you don't get away from any of this shit. The repressed always returns, and certainly going back to this idea of um, pornography, there's often something quite violent in male consumption of pornography, especially if it slips out of being just um, enjoyment and into something more compulsive or uh, addictive, right? Um, I mean, for one thing, it's a kind of, you see the comments on, uh, on, on Pornhub where guys saying, I don't know why I'm here, 
I'm miserable. I just do this because I've got nothing else to do. Right. It, it becomes an act of like real self-sabotage of self-destruction, which is the warlike instinct taken to oneself. That's basically what, what that is. And that, but then also in a kind of darker way, there's this kind of anonymous attempt to capture imagery pictures of women from like, like hacking them, revenge pawning them. And I was describing it the other day. It's almost like there's this, it's that barbarian instinct to, to take what you can when you're plundering a foreign on the internet in the 80% of it that is, uh, that is porn. You can have whatever you want and you can do whatever you want. And, and guys, guys run themselves off cliffs. Like I've met guys who have just got into trouble for illegal stuff. Right. And these are not like this kind of stereotype of a, uh, of a pedophile porn consumer is some like twisted fucked up human. No, nine times out of 10, they're just guys who fucking walked off a cliff. They didn't quite know what was happening. They got wrapped up in the orgy of it. And they were like, uh, how can I push more boundaries? How can I get something that feels kind of edgy in a sense, something that feels dangerous. Right. And that again, like, I think guys, well, where there's no danger actually going towards illegal stuff. There is a danger there, a self-sabotaging danger all at once. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this principle of aggression, I think, you know, we're also seeing it in particularly in teenage girls who, you know, they cut themselves. There's these like kind of mimetic suicides. Um, there's also mimetic like transitioning that's happening. Uh, so, and I totally like anorexia, right? Like there's these, these kinds of uh, things that uh, girls and young, young women also go through in terms of uh, their aggression turning kind of inward into their own beings. And I think something of this is about the, the kind of developmental characteristics of adolescence where you're super sensitive to the judgment of others which is essentially what you're learning. You know, as a child, you kind of like act aggressively, unprincipledly. You don't care when you push the kid over in the playground. Your parent has to come and wag their finger at you in order for you to understand that there's some sort of punishment. It's not the feeling, the panging of pain that you've hurt someone so much as some authority telling you that you should not be doing that thing uh, that ends up kind of teaching you that, oh, that's a bad behavior and I shouldn't act that way. Whereas when you're in high school, you know, if you're ostracized from your group because you've done something or you're weird or whatever, you feel the pangs of that pain internally and you, and it ruminates and it grows. Um, and it, and it actually can turn into this like wicked eye that turns towards yourself internally, where you just like totally destroy yourself. And it's really interesting, the parallel of, of what's actually happening in the brain at that time where your neurons are pruning, <laughs> they're literally destroying themselves. Um, so there is this kind of weird kind of um, thing going on where you have this like physical process happening of the pruning uh, of like pathways that had been, uh, you know, part of you in childhood. Um, and then this like hanging and identification with group and like this need to be accepted um, and when those things don't happen or you perceive that as not happening, it could even be a fabrication of your mind. It's not even necessarily something that literally happens to you. It's almost like a specter or a ghost. Um, and you attack yourself internally for these 
for these things uh, that uh, aren't aren't good about you or whatever. And I think uh, you can see this pattern really being accentuated with with teenage girls and the internet. Um, their aggression works really well, uh, kind of in the form, the ontological design of the internet um, and how they attack each other. Um, and so I think that it's something, and this maybe goes back to the idea of the pathic energy having principles both in the masculine and in the feminine. Um, and it's kind of, it's uh, it's suppression, kind of, I think the middle-class kind of bourgeois uh, way in which you're putting it, I think is, is really spot on. It's um, something that exists within the middle-class and um, because we're like, you know, we're trying to like be proper and um, act the right way and suppress ourselves in order to become good capitalist subjects and all of these things. Um, so I don't know, I, I, I definitely see that there's a, maybe this goes back to the idea of ideology or conditions kind of arising out of things that are, you know, the container of our existence and we're just kind of responding to them and you'll see this principle operating with men and with women. Um, and it's easy to just think, oh, it's just men. Um, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not, it's really not. It's, yeah, it's I think I tend to talk from that side because that's what I know. Uh, but no, I think you've done a good job at like showing me that, I think there's this kind of like warlike drive in it, but there's much more of it, right? As you, as you've laid out, there's this, like, we all have this kind of will to aggression or destruction. I was wondering as you were talking, actually, if, if it will have been different in the past, if these kind of these ostracizing social dynamics in teenagers are a bizarre byproduct of this weird thing we've invented called school, where we just draw like create a pen of kids who are all the same age by some arbitrary ring done around their birthway birthdays and say right you guys all hang out with each other now and the teachers are going to give you some lessons but other than that you just kind of go and do your own thing and organize your your social circle as you see fit which is fine but it's very different from the more tribal or kind of village-like dynamics where there would be elders, but also just people a few years older who you'd have to hang out with to do the stuff, to do farming with, to, to go hunting with, to, to go and do business with. And I imagine speculation that those figures would be the types that when there were ostracism dynamics going on back in, uh, in our ancestors, they'd go, all right, guys, come on, like you're falling out, but let's bring it back together because you actually need each other in some sense. Whereas now it's possible to just kick a kid out of the social circle and say, I don't want to play with you anymore. Or, oh, she's not cool. She's boring. Fuck her. Done. There's no consequences to the group of doing that anymore. And so if you happen to be that, that kid who is booted out and, and then also don't have a mentor or an older kid, maybe there's even an older kid who goes, you know, I was booted out 10 years ago too, but you know what? Like we went and found a, we just went off to the woods and smoked a load of weed and started talking to the gods. And, and now everybody listens to us. If you don't have that, then it's like, Oh my God, it's time for Tumblr depressing pictures. And then <laughs> that goes nasty. Yeah. I'm kind of wondering too, like uh, the bringing up the idea of school, I, I think, yes, intergenerational stuff uh, was definitely more prevalent for adolescence I mean once you I mean once you kind of like hit the beginning of uh your puberty it was like oh, you're an adult now like okay like you're gonna get married or you're gonna go into the workforce or you know you're gonna get you're gonna go become an apprentice for somebody um you're you're treated like an adult I mean uh we've extended adolescence to like 25 I mean I'm 25 I still feel like I'm a, like an, a, still kind of hanging on to some adolescent things and I'm like 
trying to get them off of me, like this adult, the kind of adultification process, but oh my God. Yeah. It's just, this is like, once again, this is like a kind of an inherited state of being um, kind of growing up at this time. But I was also thinking about, you know, we were kind of talking about this principle of like spaces, physical spaces, institutions kind of forming um, in the minds of people, kind of intuitions about reality um, and how being in school where you have like a single kind of authority of, of a teacher with a huge group of students of the same age, I think that the power dynamics of that situation are really atrocious. You know, when you're one young person or maybe two, you know, young people of the same age in a band where there are all of these older people and you're kind of, you are at the bottom of a hierarchy. It's very clear. And you have to kind of uh, find yourself within this system, uh, a very like deep political system. I mean, uh, of like relationships between all these people who have longstanding dynamics between one another. It's a very different kind of uh, world to be initiated into. You get very different kinds of intuitions about what it is that you're inheriting. But when you go into school and there's like one one teacher and there's all these students at the same age, like no wonder people are being drawn into mass politics, you know, where like there's this, you know, there's this like big boogeyman, like bad authority figure um, that all of the, you know, all the kids or the teenagers are like righteously kind of planning together to like take down the phallus um, and rise, you know, like that's totally the dynamic of of these of these groups and i think yeah you're spot on in terms of uh kind of maybe finding that as being a source where we gain our intuitions about the world but end up being really misled about how things actually genuinely work um and that in in and of itself is a kind of hole that's opened up in, in our landscape where people are just kind of falling into um and then you also have these dynamics of back into the, the yeah. idea of like OnlyFans or whatever, where there's like big hole where most people are moving in, falling into, but there's this like one kind of angelic figure that kind of controls all of what is going into the hole. Um, the, uh, the authority, but you know, for, for OnlyFans, it's like, it doesn't look like an authority. It just looks like a beautiful woman. <laughs> but really, I mean, She's uh, she's definitely holding down some kind of territory, but the territory is a, a big hole <laughs> that you fall into. I don't know. Those are just some like random thoughts I had from what you were th- what you were saying. <laughs> I just wanted to say something, which is like tying tying back to like a couple of cycles before in this conversation, which is the idea that the acceptance or rejection of perhaps the natural progression of the life cycle of a person, whether they're man or woman. Is something that just smells so much like uh, Dugin's critique of liberalism and, you know, caveat, caveat, Dugin, Dugin, Russian agent, whatever, um, <laughs> is that everything is made optional. You don't have to be a man. You can just fucking work. Exactly. You don't have to go out there and actually do something. For women, there's probably something similar. Uh, yep. You just had something, something to that effect previously. And it feels definitely that, you know, this is all instantiated within liberalism, within the optional nature of, the, of, of liberalism, that you can be in something, but you don't have to. You can choose always, as long as you can pay. It also falls into this hyper-individualistic, hyper-Cartesian, boxed-in way of seeing the individual as the master subject of society, right? That it's up to me to choose what I want to do with myself and all that. And 
even in spite of perhaps deep, deeper, deeper dynamics in our own uh, evolution. Not that I'm making a moral judgment whether people want to do that or not, but just that's that's sort of the the outline that I'm making out here. Um, oh yeah. And then and then there's this, this final idea, which is you know liberalism came because it was a way to uh, respond to the changing conditions of industrial production of of the industrial revolution. You know, suddenly there's a lot of wealth, there's a lot of commerce, there's a lot of people. And we somehow have to deal with this. Um, it's complicated. We've tried different ideologies as Purdue, right? Communism, fascism, liberalism kind of stood. Um, liberalism also has its own ways of institution disciplinary power. Let's get all the kids in the same age. Let's have one teacher over there. Let's invent a prison. Let's invent the madhouse for the undesirables. Let's invent all those Foucauldian apparatuses that are ways to sort of manage power that are, you know, a they instantiate bad power relationships or rather oppressive or like um, it's not really nice to look at them. But on the other hand, we have, you know, the population just exponentially rose. So we kind of got to deal with this somehow. And that's kind of the conundrum where we're at, right? It's that these, the grand chessboard of human resources has, you know, reached a point where there's a fuckload of us and the regulatory mechanisms that would have existed before do not apply anymore. I guess we're just going around in circles again in this conversation. And it, 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 it gets to the point where you know, people, people are trying to come up with different solutions, even when it comes to different ways to be. And I think that that's why ontological design is the last breath of liberalism, because it's okay, you can be anything you want. Here's the fucking gun. Yeah, but can you? That's going to be a hell of an experiment, but probably, I mean, be whatever you want. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And not, and not to get into some sort of a weird, like, bio-Leninist thing, but, like, you know, it's, it's, and I think this gets back to the receptivity thing of the pathos, right? It's like, um, you know, if you kind of purge yourself of all of these ideas, even the idea that you can be anything. Right, mm -hmm. and you just kind of get down and see what arises. It's funny because the authority, or like the 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 thing that tells you what you need to do, the necessity, the the authority, like deciding for you, comes mm -hmm. up almost immediately. It's like you're like, oh, this is my mission. This is my thing. I don't know where it's leading. I can't like plan it from up on high. I can't pull the, the like the puppet strings of my own intuition, but I feel a sense of certainty that this is where I have to place my risk. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the other thing. It's about risk. And this is where people are caught. They're afraid on so many levels. There's so much fear and anxiety and just like depression and rumination. And I think, you know, it's the sense of needing to know that things are going to work out, that you're going to get that thing that you expect which comes from the ontological design of commodification, where you know you're guaranteed as the customer that if you, you know, exchange X amount of dollars, you're going to get the service that you're, or product that you're paying for. And people have tended towards that type of exchange rather than going into the wild west of going out in a bar and, you know, having, striking up a conversation with a stranger, a strange woman, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing if she's going to reject or accept you, you know, that kind of activity 
requires bravery and it requires a, a home inside of you. I mean, especially if you're someone who doesn't just already have that, right? Because some of us are just, I mean, I'm like an extrovert. I go up and talk to anybody. Like, I just like don't have, I'm like almost obtuse. Like, I'm almost like kind of like dumb when it comes to knowing when I'm not supposed to talk to someone or something like that. But not everybody's like that. You know, some people are like, oh, huh, should I say something? Like, what am you know, what do I do? Like, there's a kind of like sense of being on the edge. And then instead of opening up, blooming like a flower, you like, you know, you like turn back in and you're like, I'll just go on my computer. You know, I'll just look up some porn. You know, I'll just do this thing instead. I know what I'm going to get uh, if I do this. I don't know what I'm going to get if I listen to this intuition. But when you really kind of purge all of these ideas and also the idea that you can do anything, I, I really genuinely think that it can be very paralyzing to think that, oh, I could just select from anything. You get really bad intuitions about what that means, I think, um, just by how the question is or, uh, framed to us in this kind of advertising kind of, you know, branding world. Um, but if you go ahead. I agree with you. I want to add this idea that um, it's a nonspecific amplifier. Mm. It's just uh, amplifies a lot. What it yes. it's it's not my necessarily not my prerogative, I guess. Or rather, mm -hmm. it's not. You mentioned hierarchy, and maybe maybe it's the prerogative for me and my own, and that's one thing. But you know, within liberalism, it's each individual for themselves. Yeah, and I, I think it gives people like kind of, and I think maybe it's the interface of that question of, you know, it's almost like maybe a better framing is like, yeah, the amplifier, like you can be what you don't expect yourself to be. If you tap into some sort of arising or becoming um, that maybe even your kind of planning mind could never have predicted, you become the gambler, but you're gambling on your own treasure. You're gambling on your own possibility. Um, and you're leaning on the divination process of gambling like, that's the kind of thing where, yes, right now, you know, like, we all had this intuition to come together and, and speak. We didn't know what kind of treasure we would find in this interaction. But now we've kind of created a whole new, like, forking of reality that leads to more betting, you know, more divination, more playing in the space of, of mystery and moving towards the light, you know? And that's the kind of becoming and this unbounded becoming but I think uh, is, is the right intuition of this, of this question of you can be anything that you want. But too many people, I think, are frozen by this um, concept because they see it interfacing with this commodification process where you're guaranteed to be the thing that you think you want to become if you exchange in the proper manner. And it's like, no. <laughs> in fact, like, that's not really uh, guaranteed to you. You don't have the right to become anything. Uh, you have the right to become who you are. This is like what we were talking about with uh, Chris Gabriel, the topic we were talking about, the idea that everything is permitted, right? The death of God and the ultimate kind of liberal flag in the ground. But the issue with that is that there's just like a billion distractions. There's a billion wrong directions to go in. And like you were saying, there's there's one that is the correct direction to go in. And I think the point, as Daniel got to with ontological design, is 
it's the tool for both of those for for those who are able to tap into the the expression of nature within themselves then it is a mechanism for crafting your day-to-day reality your day-to-day ontology your interfaces your environment your relationships in a way that that carries you further down that path but then for everybody else it's you get to watch whatever porn you want to watch all the fucking time (laughs) which we kind of already have right but just once we get virtual reality and we get whatever else the fuck is coming our way then that's the way it's going to be now something i'm kind of curious to open up here because it's something that Keller last and i were talking about the other day mm-hmm. um brings in this kind of zizekian hegelian digital reading of how he thinks a lot of the the power dynamics that exist today will resolve themselves or certainly the way that they should get you should get jig jig whatever that zizekian hegelian way would hope them to <laughs> And with this, he broke. And that's it. Oh, no. You're back. Okay. Okay. What's happened? Why back? I'm, I'm back. I'm back. Hegelian progression. I, 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 I broke the internet with the, uh, <laughs> the fucking words. So anyhow, we've had the religious wars and the racial wars. Now we're at this level where we're, we're battling. We're still rash, battling over race and we're battling over gender. As we move into cyberspace and the possibility to create ever more weird and wacky avatars comes up, the conflict, if there's a conflict that exists between male and female, the conflict that exists between black and white becomes less and less meaningful, especially if there is a digital platform on which all digital resources are distributed, or at least in a way that everybody can kind of, as I said, like, euphemistically get the porn that they want to watch right hmm. how does this sound as a resolution to the power conflicts that we face today i love your face hmm. i agree with you already i, I told this to long previously which is um, maybe not yeah, pull the face as well you both do the same face it will look beautiful <laughs> <laughs> Virtual worlds. I guess I'm just, I, so are you interested in like kind of anticipating resolution? Is that kind of why you're, you're going down this path of, of trying to kind of predict where maybe where the next inflection point is for conflict? Is that, is that kind of what you're Kind of, it's an interesting topic to riff on. Essentially, it's like it's a it's kind of a post-human question. It's um, will we overcome the limitations placed on us by biology and by geography uh, when we can design our ontologies and our realities with digital tools? Increasingly, so. And now I don't have the answer to this, but I think it's it's a kind of fruitful ground for picking apart. I mean, I can already a counter argument to the point it's exactly what we've been saying, right? You might be able to create yourself in any image you want to be, but 99 out of those hundred images are just going to be kind of worthless pixels on a screen. 99 of those images are going to be hot girls. Mm. Let's, let's be real. <laughs> End game. I mean, it's like, you know, you can, you can say that, I don't know, it's almost, 
I think that that was maybe part of the utopian vision of the internet in the beginning was mm. like, oh, it's going to resolve all these human conflicts. And in fact, what we've found is that they've actually accentuated underlying human conflict. Um, and it's been about the level of appearance in some sense. Uh, and maybe that's just a kind of social media like accentuation. But I, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily see it as like this infinite kind of like, uh, you know, fuel for human conflict. I think that we probably will move to a new front. Uh, maybe we already are, um, but most people are kind of falling into the pit of, of the conflict, like let's say between black and white or even between um, male and female, uh, but maybe there's some sort of deeper conflict going on. Maybe that is kind of, uh, kind of going back the way that I've been formulating a kind of possible front of conflict is between sex. Um, sex is a principle of biological life and replication, right, and, um, of technology, uh, or, or like, you know, a virus, a kind of parasitical kind of entity. Um, and when, when these things come together, I think that's a singularity point that I'm kind of interested in about what will happen to sex. What will happen to sex? What will happen to sexually reproducing organisms um, when this inflection point is reached? And I think maybe we're seeing the, just like the hints of that with the intervention of birth control, let's say, or like the invention of sex robots or uh, pornography that kind of like takes the pathic energy of, of a demographic and kind of like yeah, once again, pit of Tartarus just like goes in uh, and just like sucks it all in and that's it. Um, and then you have a kind of the sterilization that can occur uh, with with birth control, the choice to just like postpone um, that transformative process of, of, of fertility as a, as a principle um, of, of like the female cycle, but then also of pregnancy. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm still working on this idea because I'm still kind of interested in what is the how do we define the like replicating uh, this kind of like whatever the equivalent of sex is for the machine? Um, I'm still very interested in that question because that's to me kind of where these things. Yes, Daniel, you seem like you're excited to talk. <laughs> he always is. I know, I love it. <laughs> Co-domestication. So, so this idea that, you know, that which we have done to wolves and brought them into our purses as chihuahuas, it might also be happening to us through the hands of a few humans or the hands of the autonomous spectacle or the hand of uh, some super intelligent machine. But uh, simultaneously, we will also be guiding somehow the machine. So it does feel like the start of a process or a moment where deliberate domestication, deliberate uh, channeling and diversion of the evolutionary river will be a technology that is more and more <clears throat> at, uh, at available, right? We see that already with ideology, with ideas, with, you know, I don't know if you, you know the idea, autocult from, from Pat Ryan's oh, yeah. stuff, right? So, so the more we advance into this territory where you have all sorts of players trying to pursue and engage in a marketplace competition to get this technology, to get the technology to automate cults, to automate belief. I think it's just a logical next step until that becomes crisper, until that becomes uh, sort of subliminal eugenics, until that becomes, uh, broadly speaking, a sort of process where humanity is going to self-domesticate drastically 
in a direction, in many directions, maybe. Maybe we're talking about speciation. Uh, it's going to be weird. But I think it's going to be also, we're going to be, whether we like it or not, we're going to be active, deliberate participants in it. Or, or rather, if we want to be, we can. If we want to leave that to us, it will be done to us. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Like I think the, as, as you say, these kind of autocultic new power dynamics will emerge, whatever post-human stratosphere we blast off into. Like I think the, um, kind of hegelian digital communist point is precisely that the virtual avatar presents a new universality that overcomes and completely makes meaningless the previous uh, subject positions it's like another attempt at the individual of the enlightenment french revolution which you know McLuhan is fucking brilliant at pointing out how the individual is a powerful political idea because it, it frees people from from being identified with locality, with dialect, with with regions, you all become at least individual citizens of a nation with the kind of inherent prospect that you will eventually become an individual citizen of the world. With liberalism, it's you become a free rational capitalist agent in a free market. And within communism, it's you become one of the united world proletariat, right? But unfortunately, the kind of what happened, what it got exposed in the 20th century was that the, the individual subject position is a nice intellectual abstraction, but it just doesn't map on to the, the flesh, basically. There are still different skin colors and different body shapes, different degrees of attractiveness, different degrees of intelligence, different degrees of, of hormones. So they throw out the, the the idea of the the avatar, the virtual avatar, as the new universality. In a sense, the new post individual individual. But I don't see how that won't also be subject to its own power formulations, especially because it, it, I think there's no assumption that 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 resources will be equally distributed if we do move into a, into a a predominantly digital space. In fact, it'll probably be the complete opposite. As you say, Raven, it'll be 99 hot chicks. And like the person who's able to make the hottest avatar will win again and again yeah. and again, because and, unless we're able to exercise our, our, our flesh sex drives, and perhaps some people will, I think that's the real interesting post-human question, right? Is like when at the moment, a lot of women are cyborgs because they take the birth control, right? What happens when people have designer pills to give you whatever chemical state you want, but then also user interfaces that can ontologically shape you into whatever kind of weird and wacky human being you want to be, whether you want to be a lotus eater all day long or a world eater who is bio-cybernetically bio modified to be able to stay up 25 hours a day and crunch numbers so that you can run the best damn Amazon business ever. China. <laughs> what is it neo china arrives from the future <laughs> with, the, with, with this narration china whatever it does china <laughs> i don't know I, I mean different people will do different things i mean maybe that's something that like will be kind of a mass like you know, people who accept this ontology of the individual subject will maybe be attracted to articulating or actualizing themselves in that kind of environment. But 
I don't know. I, I think that at least the way that I have, you know, connected to self, it's like, uh, I mean, I'm burrowing deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the biological as my like source of connectedness to the world. I mean, I think that that's why like I'm interested in the metaphysics of sex, sex as a dynamic between like organisms as a relationship of of DNA, of like a property of, of, of DNA and how it recombines and creates all of these diverse forms um, and the intelligence of this of this being. Um, and I think maybe it all almost relates to faith in some sense. It's like, what are we, what do we have faith in here? Like, if we're going to weather through this crazy shit that's coming, crazy shit. I mean, I think, you know, what Daniel outlined of this kind of, you know, auto cult um, acceleration and oh, and what you're talking about in terms of what that might look like on, on these digital platforms. I think that that's even, that's just one slice of like the possible Kind of outcomes, the way that this may show up, particularly um, what our children may be finding themselves interacting with, um, and and their grandchildren, if they happen. I mean, that's the thing of it. Like, if people don't reproduce, we're going to have a huge collapse in population. How many avatars will there be? Is this just kind of what people who aren't going to reproduce they like take their, their drive towards legacy, towards future, and they make themselves into these like avatars that could exist as specters online forever? You know, that somehow uh, there's a kind of death drive operating in this way of, of being driven towards imprinting oneself on the digital landscape. Maybe that's part of it. But I still think that there, there is so much power in the extended nature of lineage, of flesh, yeah. of being of a body. And that fact that that body goes all the way back. Like we are part of an unbroken continuous line. That's just a fact. And we can perpetuate that into the future. That is something that we can do. And like, I feel like doing that now, especially who we are, like, you know, there's some sense of which like, and I, I don't know what your backgrounds are, what you were raised in, but like, I think that kind of um, for me, like living in a progressive household, kind of having to push through all of this, all of this stuff and kind of arrive at the other side at something else, you know, not merely a kind of reactionary position, but something that is attempting to do something new. I'm not trying to bring back the past. I don't want to live in a museum, but like facing the future, but also connecting deeply beyond just, you know, neo feudalism or whatever it is, whatever future people want to place into reality now, but all the way back, all the way back to sex, to the origins of life and saying, no, that's my lineage. You know, I'm on the, I am in connection to this force that is on this planet. And I, do I have faith in what it's doing? And, and it's both, it's disgust, you know, it's, it's, it's like nature to destroy. Um, and it's kind of paradoxical uh, quality that it seems to be creating the conditions of our own extinction. Like the fact that it has those properties but it also has this like ability to continue to get into the future over and over and over and again through these bottlenecks. You know, I, I think that there's, there's something, there's a mystery there. Once again, like there's a mystery there. And I wonder um, if that's what we're tasked with, like letting it, you know, arise through us and, and investigating. Um, I, I don't know. I'm maybe going to go, but. <laughs> That was amazing. 
Pride is one way to talk about Yggdrasil, the tree of life, uh, you know, even in the Kabbalah, the continue that the endless uh, uh, lineage that is unbroken from the vast east, from the vast origin that goes even before life, where yeah. how far we don't know, and that will continue to the vast future. And this belongingness is 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 almost like when Heidegger talks about being itself and the sign, and that's that's the deeper root of it. It feels like you know there are cycles to Igorasil. Maybe when we're talking about you know evolutionary bottlenecks, we're talking about many of its leaves. Their fall is coming and they're going to fall. They're not going to be pruned because there's no big war, but they're going to fall of their own lack of vitality in connection to the source. Still waters in a swamp. Uh, I read this somewhere today referring to, you know, when some people are so disconnected from the source, they become literal, the definition of zombies who live in swamps. Swamps are still waters as opposed to connected to the big river. And, you know, you just said the word faith there. So I felt impelled to, to talk about Idrisil and these uh these these deeper concepts you know varil uh, the chakra uh, uh chi um very very cool very interesting any more thoughts owen or do we, do we think that we're you know after two and a half hours at a good place to wrap up <laughs> oh, i mean there's so much more to say but we can talk later too uh, i think this was a really great um introduction <laughs> the season we got like two episodes right here we're gonna invent like uh three more in our next session i love that this is investigation you know like i think that that's so important is like to be curious i, I love this idea that bard talks about with antagony right like let's stress each other like let's get into this stuff and um that there's a kind of openness like there actually is a frontier we don't know what the fuck we are doing and like, that's what makes this so interesting and exciting. Like what an amazing time to be alive, you know? And there's so much pessimism. People feel like they're like at the end of the world and like everything's horrible. And it's like, okay, look at this beautiful thing. Look at this craziness. Like there's something to embrace here. Um, and I'm just so, I'm so grateful that I could come in and talk to you guys and um, yeah, work on some of these some of these ideas with you it's so great, so great. beautiful it feels like we're at the world sphere like at the present like not only us here now but maybe collectively and maybe both at the same time who knows synchronicities that we're like at this you know the present time we're at the edge of something we're on the verge on the cusp of perhaps having the ability to steer cybernetics has the root on the greek word steering so maybe that's what we're trying to do yeah, there's something really beautiful about just being in a genuinely creative bubble of culture, essentially. As you said, we don't know where we're going, but we're pretty open to exploring it together, which I think is just actually not that present in in late stage capitalism, essentially. It's like what Jordan Hall talks about with simulated thinking. And again, like trying to preserve the complicated structures as, as instead of shifting into complex mode, which is like number one, accepting like, okay, A, something's happening. B, I have no fucking idea what's happening. And then building from there. And I, I feel very fortunate having been primed by spending like a coming of age in my teenage years in like, the heavy metal subcultures, which was like an intensely creative participatory mm. subculture. And so it's like what I've kind of always in intuitively known since being a kid, right, was was like 
there's a bubble that exists outside of the mainstream world. Like it's not talked about in the mainstream world. There's no real ways into it from the mainstream world. I just happened to buy guitar today. And then I, I heard like Iron Maiden Metallica and I was like, wow. And that's probably how I've wound up here, to be honest with you, with fucking Guitar Hero 3. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You're very welcome to come back anytime. Great. I would love to. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to see what happens. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what comes of all of this. What kind of mysteries we're dealing with. We are not at the end of history. History is moving again. We are history. We are history. Fuck yeah. you, Francis. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so that said, thank you, Technosocialists. We'll see you on the next Consider becoming our patron and helping us put out more content like this. Patreon.com forward slash techno social.